Welcome to the Food Therapy Podcast, where we talk honestly and openly about mental health, diet culture, BS, and food freedom. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brittany Modell, owner of Brittany Modell Nutrition and Wellness. And I'm Lauren Sharp, owner of Empower Method Nutrition. We are food freedom registered dietitians who have struggled with mental health, poor body image, and disordered eating behaviors. We are on a mission to dismantle diet culture, normalize conversations around mental health, and empower you as you heal your relationship with food and your body. Let's get talking. All right. Welcome back to the Food Therapy Podcast. We are so excited to have Amanda from T1D Nutritionist on Instagram with us today. And welcome, Amanda. We're so excited to have you. Uh, Thank you guys so much for having me here. I'm excited. Yes. So do you want to kind of start off with introducing yourself, talking about what you do, how you got into your um, place that you're in right now? Yeah, so I have been a registered dietitian and I ultimately became a dietitian because of my own diagnosis with type 1 diabetes back in 2012, which is just mind blowing that it like literally in like three weeks, it's going to be 10 years that I've been living with type 1 diabetes myself. And there's never a good time to get diagnosed with diabetes. Um, but I was diagnosed at the age of 18, which was a very fragile, lots of changes happening at that age. Um, I was actually a senior in high school, like three months before I graduated. So it really changed a lot of things for me. And hindsight is always 2020, but ultimately it's what inspired me to go and become a dietitian because I was really interested in how big of a role nutrition plays in diabetes management. Originally, I got into the field for all of the wrong reasons, because I really wanted to be able to manipulate my blood sugars with food. And I went down a path of a lot of obsession, a lot of restriction, I had severe like social anxiety if I was going out and I didn't know the carb count for what I was eating. And ultimately it wasn't until I was in my internship that I heard of intuitive eating. And it was like a light switch of like, wait, I don't have to restrict all of these carbs and manipulate my blood sugars. And I can still have a great A1C and meet all of these thresholds without being obsessive with my management. And ultimately, I realized that a lot of people also experience the same thing that I've experienced just because of the gaps in traditional healthcare. So now I work with type 1 diabetics and their families to really help them learn to manage their blood sugars without having to cut out carbs. Amazing. (laughs) It's just, it's really cool when you can have your own experience and turn it into something so positive that not only helps yourself, but also helps so many others. And I can imagine, I cannot imagine that at age 18, it's almost like your life is turned upside down. Like everything that you were doing just switches. And so if you can, you know, share what that experience was like for you. And in the beginning of that process, like how, how that went. Yeah, it was, um, a very overwhelming time. So it was actually two weeks after I turned 18. So I was in our healthcare system. I was considered an adult, 
But I was sitting in the ER for about like eight hours because pretty much they were arguing whether or not I wanted to be seen as a pediatric or seen by adult endocrinology, because there's just a little bit of different types of how they manage the diabetes is a little bit different. Um, but ultimately, I ended up getting uh, admitted to the pediatric floor, but I was seen by adult endocrinology. And because I was in the ER like all day long, by the time I finally got like admitted into my room, the cafeteria was closed. And I haven't eaten like anything all day because my blood sugar was so high. It kept breeding error every time they finger pricked me. Wow. So that means my blood sugar was over 600. So no one wanted to feed me. They were like, just wait, just wait, just wait. So when I was finally admitted, the nurse was just like, you know, we don't have anything. Uh, we do have like a pantry that had like graham crackers and like jelly and like juice. But she was just like, I understand you haven't eaten all day. Um, I was admitted in like a college town. So there was a lot of restaurants around. So they were like, if someone in your family wants to go and grab something, you can like bring food in. So my sister had gone out and she went and got a pizza because it was her, uh, her boyfriend, my mom, my dad, there was like five or six people and we all haven't eaten all day. So pizza, like the easiest thing to feed a lot of people. So we're like sitting on this hospital bed, all spread out through the room. And <laughs> the nurse comes in to check my vitals. And she looks at like the box of pizza. And she goes, mm, yeah, enjoy your last supper because tomorrow you start insulin. Oh. And yes, immediately I was like mid bite. And I just like took the pizza and I just was like, I just lost my appetite. Of course. And it was like four hours into my official diagnosis that I knew my relationship with food was going to change. Mm -hmm. And that is like something that has like just stuck with me all 10 years so far was that voice. Because every mm -hmm. time I was out going out to eat, I was just like, mm, enjoy your last supper. Should you really be eating that? Should you, wow. are you sure you should eat that? And yeah, that was something that has just stuck with me the entire time. And for those listening, can you briefly explain the difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different types of diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition. So something had triggered my immune system to pretty much attack the beta cells of my pancreas. So I am no longer producing insulin. So I have to give myself insulin through injections. Some people use insulin pumps. Um, with type 2 diabetes, it's often because of insulin resistance. That insulin resistance can be from a wide variety of factors. Um, but that's really the biggest difference between yeah. the two. What's the, like, I just, I can't, first of all, I can't believe that she said that. Second of all, I can't even imagine, like, that period of time kind of like what Brittany was saying what it, it's just really hard transitioning from out of high school moving away if you're going to college did you before all of this happened what did your relationship with food look like were you kind of you know did you have a healthy relationship with food and this kind of just you know catapulted it or what did that look like so throughout my years like prior to diabetes I didn't know anything about nutrition. 
Like I kind of remembered in school, they taught me like the food pyramid and kind of like my plate. Like I knew what like carbs were. I knew what protein was. I knew fruits and vegetables, like all that stuff. But I didn't really know much about nutrition. And I do feel like now that I was able to heal my relationship with food, I have a better understanding of like general nutrition that without my diagnosis, I probably never would have really known. So Mm. yes, I had to go through like very big highs and lows with being able to understand that. But without my diagnosis, I was eating like two bagels for breakfast with like 10 packs of butter because they were like two for a dollar at my high school. So my awareness around nutrition wasn't really there. So I went Mm. from having kind of no awareness to now hyper focused on every single piece of food I put into my body. And it was like, how can we meet in the middle? (laughs) (laughs) And you said that you had heard about intuitive eating and it kind of was like a light bulb going off. Did you have any hesitation with like, oh, there's no way that I could do that and manage my diabetes? Not necessarily. I had listened, I was listening to a continuing education um, recording from a dietitian. Her name is Margaret Fletcher. And she was teaching something called the blood sugar rocket. And it was something that like, it was just a light bulb moment because I always thought that like, when I was diagnosed, I was given like a worksheet and workbooks of like good carbs, bad carbs, carbs to eat, carbs to avoid no white rice, no brown, uh, only brown rice, no white bread, only wheat bread. And she had this training and it just listed different categories of carbs. And she was just like, sure, there's some carbs that are going to digest faster, but to slow your rocket down, you can add these foods like fiber and protein and fat. And that was like, it just, everything just clicked because I was just like, oh, I've been absolutely terrified of eating white bread and white rice and white pasta and all of these things. And I was like, wait, how awesome is that? And I was just like, I'm going to try it. And then I went and I tried it and I was just like, wait, I can actually like go out to eat and not just order a grilled chicken salad. Like amazing, amazing. So crazy. Like where did this come from that? Like we just have to manage carbs. Like, there's so many better ways to manage your, your blood sugar, you know, like yeah. adding fat, protein, et cetera. But like, even when I was in the hospital, uh, like in my clinical internship, it was always about like carb counting. And I'm like, why, why aren't we teaching them how to just manage their blood sugar in general? Mm-hmm. Right. And also like eliminating white rice and white bread and all these things. First of all, like there's so much privilege to that because you're essentially eliminating all the foods that are most probably convenient and inexpensive. And then on top of that, like not taking into account like different cultures, different ethnicities, like different ways and patterns of eating. Mm-hmm. So it's like a very like white centric view too, which I think a lot of healthcare is to be honest. Yeah. 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 It's incredibly disappointing to see like the stigma and the bias just surrounding diabetes in general, because everyone's diabetes is going to be managed differently because my food preferences are different from both of yours because there's certain foods that like I absolutely hate. (laughs) Right. So uh, being able to like the approach that I like to take with my clients is teaching them 
that it's okay to like and dislike certain foods. It's okay to choose white rice just as long as like, and it's just as fine to choose brown rice, but it's that intention behind why they're making their, those food choices. Yeah. Are they mm-hmm. choosing like brown rice because they have to, and like the health claims that they've heard about from someone else, or are they like choosing it because they're absolutely terrified of white rice? What mm-hmm. is that intention? So we often dig deep into like a lot of like the noise that they have heard, articles that they have read. Um, so then they can feel comfortable no matter what foods they're eating. They have a wide variety of tools to be able to manage their blood sugars. Yeah. And I feel like it gives them, you know, it, it gives people back the choice as opposed to like, this is what you have to do, mm-hmm. which could be so empowering. What other tips do you have as far as like managing diabetes without obsessing over your blood sugars and carbs? Yeah, I definitely take an abundance approach with my clients. So always focusing on the foods that you can add. Um, So two things that we usually focus on is like the type and the amount of carb that you're eating. So if you want to choose white rice, again, for example, Black and white, white rice compared to brown rice, of course, white rice is going to impact your blood sugars more significantly. But what other foods are you eating around with that white rice? Are you eating lean proteins? Are you adding fiber? What else are you having to it to then help manage your blood sugars? Number two is the amount. If you're having like a half a cup of white rice compared to three cups of white rice, that's going to have a very big different uh, difference on how it then ultimately impacts your blood sugar. So uh, we really dive deep into understanding all of these like little nuances that come up with just being able to understand more about how the human body digests and absorbs different types of food. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it's so key to just take the judgment away, right? Of like, oh my gosh, I'm horrible. I can't manage my blood sugars. I can't believe I chose that. What did I do wrong? And taking more of a curiosity approach of like, "Hmm, that's interesting. That Mm -hmm. really raised my blood sugar. I wonder what we can do different next time. Yeah. And that's what I really like to lean into with my clients is really taking that judgment away. Because when I was diagnosed, this was before like continuous glucose monitors existed. Um, and all the fun diabetes technology that's out there now, but I had to come in with a food log and every time my blood sugar was out of range, she would literally circle everyone with a red pen and then go through my food log and be like, Oh, why did you choose that? And I'd be like, because that's what I wanted. And she'd be like, Oh, well, you should have chose this instead. It's like, well, instead of telling me like, this was a better choice, why can't you give me like tools to how I can keep that blood sugar in range next time, rather than just demonizing every single food choice that I made. Right. And asking like, what do you like? Yeah. Yep. And it's, yeah, it it always just seemed to always come back down to like demonizing the carbs that I chose rather than, okay, let's talk about the amount, the foods that you ate with it. What was your dosing strategy for it? Did you like not take your insulin ahead of time? Did you take it too late? Did you forget to take your insulin? Like whatever it could be, there's so many other factors that could be influencing blood sugars 
aside from just the carbs. Yes. It's a really good point. And what about other factors, even outside of food? So like exercise, for example, or sleep or stress, like how did those kind of come into play? Yeah. So there's actually like 42 factors that can influence blood sugar levels. Um, Like you mentioned, exercise, sleep, altitude, um, any type of stress, whether you're sick or stressed out. um, There's so many factors that can influence blood sugar levels. And I think a lot of times why people focus so hard on like what they're eating is because with diabetes, so many of those factors are out of your control. You sometimes can't control how your body is going to physically respond to stress or how your cortisol level is going to raise when you don't get a sufficient amount of sleep. There's so many things out of your control that ultimately you can really control three-ish things, how how much you're moving your body. So a lot of people manipulate exercise by over-exercising. what you're eating or what you're choosing to eat. So a lot of people then restrict their carbs and their insulin, which a lot of people deem insulin as bad and they want to take the least amount as as possible. And Mm -hmm. with just those three things, those are often the three things that I see my clients kind of try to manipulate instead of leaning into, hey, this is really hard to mimic like the partial function of a human organ And there are so many things that are left out of my control that even if you count your carbs, you take your insulin, you do everything quote unquote right. If you don't get that desirable outcome, yes, it's frustrating, but it also isn't your fault. Yeah, it's so true. I feel like we're so led to believe. I mean, I obviously haven't struggled with this, but um, I've had clients who have that it's 100% in your control. It's kind of like just health in general, right? Of like, I have high cholesterol. Uh, I did all these things wrong. What's wrong with me? When a lot of times it can be genetics, it can be so many different factors. And we're just always led to believe that it's our fault. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I often hear it a lot from clients that come to me. They say like their healthcare professionals are like, oh, my doctor told me if I just lose 10 pounds, my A1C will be lowered. Or if I just ate less carbs, or if I just exercise more. And I have had a handful of clients who were literally eating like less than 20 grams of carbs a day, walking up to six miles a day, and their blood sugars were still elevated. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how can we continue to blame the patient and not just teach them and not see in I feel like society and even some doctors just see insulin as a bad thing and it's not it's natural everyone's body is secreting insulin right and just because you have diabetes and you need to get it through injections or through a pump if you need it your body needs it and there's nothing wrong with giving your body what it needs it's like one of the most basic forms of self-care that you can give yourself i mean especially for type one like you have to give your body insulin Mm -hmm. and it's i feel like in type 2 diabetes insulin is like really taboo and stigmatized it's like 
oh, like you weren't able to control your blood sugars by diet, exercise, and potential weight loss. Like now you have to get insulin. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's also interesting to see how that's viewed in like type one and type two. What do you tell clients who come to you and say like, my doctor said that I need to lose 10 pounds or I have to go on like a low carb diet? So I really want to make them feel validated that, you know, it's tough to manage blood sugars. It's really hard. And I try to make them one feel validated that it's frustrating when you're not getting the results that you want. But then I try to tell them um, that if you are desiring weight loss, it's more so the behaviors surrounding the weight loss that ultimately lead to you lowering your A1C than the weight loss lowering your A1C. Because you could lose 10 pounds, but if you don't know how to take your insulin or understand nutrition, your blood sugars are still going to be sporadic. So I try taking that approach with them. And a lot of times, a lot of people are really open and receptive to it, but I still find so many people are like, no, I need to just focus on weight because that's what my doctor said. And I just think that's incredibly sad. So sad. I love having like little mini case studies because I feel like a lot of times, I mean, we talk about this all the time, how there's just this complex around doctors knowing everything. And, you know, you come to a dietitian and it's like, well, my doctor said this and they usually don't believe us, which is sad, but, um, I had a, so I love to use case studies in the sense of just what I've experienced. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not research, but anecdotal. Um, so I actually had a client right before this, which what are the chances message me? She had seen me, she joined my program. Um, she was like, I am so sick of binging sweets. I, my A1C is in the pre-diabetes range and my doctor told me to lose weight. And I was like, well, how would you feel if we didn't focus on weight and we just focused on healthful behaviors? And she literally just messaged me three months later and she was like, I just got my lab work back and I'm at the highest weight I've ever been but I have a healthier relationship with food and I'm no longer in the pre-diabetes range. So I'm like, she was like, I am just absolutely shook that I didn't do anything to my weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And it's incredibly frustrating to see when clients will still receive that A1C goal. They will meet that target range and then they're still met with weight comments. Mm, yeah that's always a really frustrating one to navigate with them because they're like, I'm, I've met everything and you still want me to lose weight. Why, Mm -hmm. why, Mm -hmm. what's that going to do? It's going to just be like feed into more obsessive thoughts and behaviors. Yeah. And the language is usually like, okay, well, you're, you know, A1C is better, but you should still lose weight because it's just going to go back up again. There is a, there is actually a um a TikTok that I came across yesterday and this person was like when I'm in a larger body and my labs come back stellar and like his face was just like sh- like just shook because the doctor 
he was like pretending to be the doctor being like, wait, what? Like how, how are your labs so perfect? Like you're in a larger body. And it goes back to this like idea, obviously like there's so much stigma in healthcare when it comes to body size. And as a society, we've been trained to think that weight equals health, weight equals everything. When Amanda, like you were saying, like it really has to do with the behaviors that you're engaging in that may you know, lead to weight loss. It may, we may lead to weight gain and it may just have no impact on your weight, but it's really those behaviors that are improving health outcomes, not the actual weight loss itself. Yeah. And I am seeing like a big movement in diabetes management in general away from weight stigma, but doesn't mean that it's something that a lot of clients are still experiencing but I have been seeing a lot more like hazel-lined like practitioners online, which is really wow. helpful um, because they will help them focus on those behaviors rather than just like, mm, you got to lose 10 pounds, which is just, I'm really thankful to be a part of that shift and that movement that's happening. So people don't have to go down that restrictive and obsessive path that I was going down when I was diagnosed. Yes. Yes. This is kind of backtracking, but I'm very curious. What made you go to the ER that day when you were diagnosed? So it was the day after Valentine's Day. And I went to a dinner and a movie with my boyfriend at the time. And truthfully, I can't even tell you what the movie was about. I've always been like a really good like drinker. Like my mom would always be like, man, you're going to ruin your appetite if you drink too much before dinner. Like I've always was drinking a lot. So when you say drinking a lot, you mean like fluids, not alcohol. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I went to this movie and I was just always really thirsty and I was so excited because they had free refills Uh, and like the waiter would like come and like bring you like this big, huge glass. And at the time I was a Sprite drinker. So I was like, amazing. So I was drinking like a huge glass of Sprite and then I would have to pee like instantly So like movie theaters, you know, there's like long hallways and whatever. So by the time I walked like across the whole theater, down the corridors, whatever, went to the bathroom, walked back, I would like chug another Sprite, order another one and then have to do it again. And I was just doing that the whole entire like duration of the movie. Then um, after the movie, uh, it was like a 20 minute drive home. And I came back and I have a dog on my lap. There's one back there, but there's one on my lap too. (laughs) She is my spoiled old lady. So, um, she had a special Brita like in the fridge for the water in her doggy dish. And I swear to God, it was like Super Bowl when like they win and they take like the Gatorade and like dump it on their face because I had never, I had like the worst, I can only explain it as cotton ball mouth. I was so thirsty and nothing could like help. And I was just like, this is weird. Like I've been thirsty, but never like chugging it like Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) And I was just, after that, I was just like, I am so exhausted. So I went to sleep and I came downstairs the next morning and I felt like I was hit by a school bus. Like I was, I wasn't sleeping because I was like peeing every two minutes. And I was just like, I think I just need a day to like catch up on sleep. 
it was February. It was like when people were starting to get like their acceptance letters from college. I was in AP classes. So I was really stressed out. So Mm -hmm. I was really attributing it to stress. (laughs) And um, so I came downstairs and I was like, mom, I feel like not great. And she was like, you look not great. And because I turned 18 two weeks prior, my mom didn't have to go with me to my pediatrician's office. So she was like, great, I don't have to take off work. You can drive yourself to the doctor. So I like go back to bed. I wake up in the early afternoon and I was just like, all right, we're going to the doctor. And that moment I stepped on the, I went to the office and was like, what brings you in? And I'm like, I just don't really feel great today. I kind of have a headache and that's really it. Um, I stepped on the scale and I had lost a significant amount of weight from my uh, physical six months prior. And he was asking me a lot of questions because I was at a very fragile age, Um, almost like I had an eating disorder. He was almost screening me for that. And I was like, no, I'm eating, you know, I'm still eating. I'm still drinking. I'm not over-exercising. I'm not doing any of these behaviors. And he was just like, I'm really concerned about how much weight you lost in such a short short amount of time, Um, especially without really trying. And then he finger pricked me and checked for ketones in my urine. And he was just like, what's your mom's phone number? You have to go to the ER right now. And I came back and it was like an intervention. My mom was there. My dad was there. My sister was there. And everyone's like, all right, we're uh, going to the ER. And it was just so crazy because now again, hindsight is 2020. I had blurry vision. I had headaches. I had excessive thirst, frequent urination. I had all the telltale signs of diabetes, but it wasn't like my eyeballs were bleeding. I was in intense, like physical pain or anything like that, that there was no real red flags that were popping up. So, um, yeah, the whole thing was just a crazy ride. (laughs) Wow. And did you know what diabetes was prior to that? Like when you were told like you have diabetes, like what sort of came to mind for you? So the night before I was diagnosed, I remember sitting in bed and this was like when smartphones were like kind of coming a thing. And I was just like, in my head, I was just like, you know, this isn't right. Like this isn't right. So I was just like, like excessive thirst and like frequent urination. I like Googled just that phrase. And the first thing that came up was like WebMD and it was like diabetes. And I was like, no, I can't have diabetes. And it was because it just fed into like, I even had my own biases and stigmas associated around diabetes because I was just like, I'm 18. I'm in a thin body. I can't have this. And then lo and behold, I had it. And that really, um, I think it it really helped me take into consideration my own biases, my own privileges through my own diagnosis as well, because I didn't think I could get diabetes. Well, you had such a great doctor too, because it seems like that should just be protocol of like, oh, you lost a significant amount of weight, you're 18, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of times it's just kind of looked over. So it's great that they caught that. Also, out of curiosity, is bleeding eyes like actually a thing or was that just there's like, probably know? some people that get like bleeding eyes maybe they like blow a retina or their cornea or maybe something like that where their eye like gets like bloodshot from like mm. the little thing but like, yeah nothing okay. nothing crazy wow. <laughs> and how I don't know the 
the actual science behind all diabetes. But if you, if you had technically started becoming resistant to or not producing insulin six months ago, what stopped you from um, going into like diabetic ketoacidosis? So diabetic ketoacidosis oftentimes does take a long time to develop um, Mm -hmm. because my pancreas may have been partially working from like August, September, October, Mm -hmm. um, and my blood sugars may have just been a little elevated, but not much. And then as that elevation continued and continued and continued, you can change like the pH of your blood. And it also goes, there's like a bunch of things that like qualify you for DKA. It's like your Mm -hmm. like pH, your electrolytes, all these different labs. And I actually didn't meet that when I went into DKA. I was Mm -hmm. probably exceptionally close because Mm -hmm. um, they took a serum glucose and it was well over a thousand and my A1C was like 16. So I was definitely like, if I didn't go to the doctor when I went to the doctor, I don't know what would have happened. And that's like the craziest thing about diabetes is a lot of people don't take those symptoms. They brush it off as stress. They brush Mm -hmm. it off as maybe, I don't know, they had kids and they're just always peeing all the time. Um, There's so many things that don't seem like big, harsh red flags. And ultimately, people end up in the hospital for other things and then find out that they're actually in DKA, which is just so incredibly scary. Right. Yeah. I also feel like 18, it's not, is it, I I could be wrong, but 18 seems like a little old also to be diagnosed with, with um, type one, or I feel like it's more like childhood, but is that? Yeah. So type one diabetes used to be known as like juvenile diabetes, but more and more research has been coming out that type one diabetes can be diagnosed essentially at any age. Um, Mm -hmm. So traditionally I may have been diagnosed like older than most, but I have had clients that have been diagnosed in their thirties and their forties and their fifties and their sixties, all different ages, which is just it's so crazy. Either spectrum, like I mentioned earlier, there's no good age to get diagnosed with diabetes, but there is something to say how challenging it is to get diagnosed in adulthood. Yeah, Yeah. 100%. And just quickly going back to DK, can you just explain what that is and why it is so important to take your insulin? Yeah, so it is diabetic ketoacidosis. So it is when your blood sugars are persistently elevated due to an absence of insulin. So this could potentially happen when you're sick, undiagnosed, um, not taking your insulin efficiently. And if you are in DKA, you can end up in a coma, having seizures. It is incredibly dangerous because your blood sugars are so elevated that your body really just can't function due to the oversaturate oversaturation of like sugar in your bloodstream instead of in your cells where it belongs. Yeah. So essentially your insulin, when you inject it, taking all the sugar from your bloodstream and it's kind of the school bus that takes the sugars into your cells so that they can be used. So Mm -hmm. if it's just hanging out there, then that can lead to 
not so great thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's why insulin is so important and you yeah. shouldn't, uh, no one should feel stigmatized or bad or guilty for needing to take it because your body needs it. Yeah. Right. 100%. Well, I'm sure that you are such an incredible help and source of light for clients because not only are you obviously so knowledgeable about it, but you have your own lived experience, which I'm sure just makes your clients feel so seen and heard. So how can someone work with you if they're listening to our podcast? Yeah. So I have a variety of ways that clients can work with me, whether it's one-on-one through just bundle sessions or courses that I have. And something that's incredibly important to me is the accessibility factor for people living with type 1 diabetes. Our healthcare system is incredibly privileged and people with diabetes, people that are living with other conditions, um, they have to pay a lot of money for the healthcare that they need to live. So because of that, I try to have a variety of accessibility options for my clients. And because of that, I have ways to work with me that fit a wide variety of different budgets because I don't want to gatekeep this. I want to make sure that every person or family that is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, that they have access to this type of education. It's amazing. And where can we find you on social? So I am t1d.nutritionist on Instagram or on my website at t1dnutritionist.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download, and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review. Let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear next. All information about this episode will be linked in our show notes. New episodes of Food Therapy come out every Sunday, but you can stay connected with Food Therapy all week long by following us on Instagram at foodtherapypod. As a disclaimer, this podcast should not replace therapy or working with a registered dietitian. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.